Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. This morning we'll be reading in Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman said or saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can trust you in what you say. Father, pray that you'd open our hearts, our minds as we hear what Pastor Matt shares today. Pray that we'd believe your word. We'd hide it in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, ushers, if you would serve us, let's take up the offering. Just reminding ourselves that every good thing is a gift from the Lord. And we give back a portion of that. It was a privilege this morning as as we sang. Number one, it was a privilege to not be on stage and get to hear... uh, others in the congregation leading us in worship, but one of the great things that happened was sitting on the front row, and we're singing that that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a, a, a new take on a 500-year-old hymn from Martin Luther, and uh, I just got to say, it did my heart good to hear these little kids behind me belting out, we will keep our eyes on you. We'll keep our eyes on you. And then exploding into the chorus, a mighty fortress of our God. A sacred refuge. It's where we run to is his name. His kingdom is unshakable. And I would, I would beg you, kids in this place, not only sing that truth, but believe that truth. There will be days that shake everything that you know and believe in this world Oh, may we have taught our kids that our God is a mighty fortress. He alone is where we run. I think that's important as we look at 
a passage like this in Genesis chapter 3. At Eden Worship Center, we are very serious about God's Word. In fact, uh, maybe sometimes a bit too serious in our, our attempts to take God's Word seriously. And yet, in a day where the church in general has taken their approach towards God and the teaching of God's Word and shifted it from a serious, sober-minded look to more of an entertainment venue on a Sunday morning. How can I do a bigger and better show than the next church down the road so we can keep you coming back week after week? And yet, I would remind us that Scripture is eternally serious. And it's not just about where you're going to spend Sunday, it's where you're going to spend eternity. Now, this is not a call for the church to be stuffy, all right? It, hear me really clearly on this. This is not a bunch of stuffy people who forgot to laugh a long time ago. But it is a call and reminder for sober-mindedness when we come to the word of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And yet this passage in Genesis 3 is even more serious. Right here in Genesis 3, we, we see this transition from God's perfect creation, the perfect man, the perfect woman, without sin, without contamination. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 3, everything changes. So our time today is still under the umbrella of Genesis 3. Sin has come into the world. There's been a break in the relationship of man and God. There's been an outbreak, an infection of sin. And this passage gives us for the first time an unveiling of an enemy among us. An enemy lurking among God's perfect creations. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Friends, I would say that his pattern is unchanged. From right here, the very first sin, the very first temptation in Genesis 3, to your heart today, your life today, his pattern is unchanged. This is one of the fill-in-the-blanks in your bulletin for you. There, there's going to be a, a three-step process we're going to see in Genesis, and we're, as we look into the world, you're going to see it in the world around you. And it starts with doubting God's word. Did God really say this? Is this really what he meant? Can what he said actually be trusted? And then after that one comes distorting God's word. Just subtle things, just small things, small twists, small adjustments and accommodations but changing the word of God. And lastly, dismissing God's word. Now, my father, the right Reverend Harold Gingrich, is uh, preaching this morning at another church in the community, filling in in their pulpit. And I just want to say it's a good thing because the rapture just might happen if his son had a three-point sermon and every single one of them had alliteration in them. Like, like thanks be to God, you know, I have seen it. Jesus, take me home. So we don't want that for him. Uh, and I'll just tell you up front, there, there's a lot of stuff that I'm not going to cover that's in my notes. Uh, so make sure that you're checking out the midweek podcast. We're going to go through even more stuff. And some of you are going to be at the end. You're like, how long is this guy going? And there's still more yes to the glory of God. 
Uh, check it out on Wednesday. Uh, look at verse 1 with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? This is not like any snake you have ever seen in your life. He's described as being more crafty than any other beast of the field. Uh, the word crafty in the Hebrew means a, an intelligence, a shrewdness. It doesn't have uh, the, the overtones that you might expect looking at this passage of, of being sort of sneaky and underhanded. It, it was just sort of this wily, crafty, intelligent, shrewd beast. And yet this serpent was not just a serpent. We know from the rest of Scripture that this is a manifestation of Satan himself. And in fact, it didn't even look like any serpent you had ever seen, because this one either, and we're not really told which way this went, either had legs or stood upright. And those of you who have a fear of snakes, that's like your worst nightmare. Right? The snake that can stand up and look you in the face, game over. Count me out, right? My mother would leave. She's praying for the rapture if that would, she said I would die. We know that because of the curse that God puts on the serpent. In Genesis 3, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So something changes physically for this creature. And yet his trick doesn't change. His, his appearance has changed, and his trick to deceive and lead people astray is unchanged from then till now, and it begins with a call to doubt God's word. We start by doubting the content of God's word, and by the way, Satan plays both sides of this really well. Uh, starting out, is that really what God said? You must have misinterpreted. I, I, I know that God said that. I, I know that the Bible says that. But you must have misinterpreted. I'll, I'll bet in 2022 there's a better interpretation. It's something that, that keeps pace with culture a little bit better. Did God really say that? That can't be true. And here's why. God loves you. God wants you to be happy just as you are. Anything that would restrict your freedom or fun must be bad. It must be some outdated misunderstanding of God's word. But, but we, can you, hear, can you hear the serpent's hiss in this? But we know better. It's fine. It's fine. Live, live your life. Be true to yourself. Not, not God. Some, not some restrictions that God's word puts on you. Be true to yourself. It's fine. It's the same temptation we face today, and it's right here in Genesis 3. Doubt God's word. Here's the second reason he said it. The first one is doubt the word on the content. Here's the second one. Doubt God's character in why he said it. Did God really say that? So the first one is, well, I'm not sure God said that. The second one is said with a different tone. Did God say that? You can't eat of any tree of the garden? Now, had God told them they couldn't eat of any tree of the garden? No. In fact, the whole world is wide open to them, but one of the ways you can read this is him saying, are you kidding? Like, you're going to follow a God that's that restrictive? That holds you back like that? Well, God must not love for you. He must not love you. He must not care for you. If he would say something like that, he must just be mean. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care for you. Again, hear that hiss. 
but I do. Can you hear this echo in our world today? Oh, anyone who would hold you back and restrict you from anything, some free expression of who you are, they must not only not love you, they must hate you. And the world hisses in our children's ears, but we love you. But I love you. Come to me. I will give you true life and freedom. The message is unchanged. This God, he doesn't want you to be who you really are. He's trying to keep you from enjoying the good things in this life. It's an attack on the character of God. Up to this point, consider with me, friends, God has only given them good things. Right? An entire unstained and perfect creation, an entire world that was just given to them. This is yours. Have dominion over it. Subdue it. It's a gift to you from a gracious Father. God has only given them good gifts, but Satan calls them to doubt God's character. Has God told you something to hold back for? Rather than saying he's a good Father and he wants the best for me, you should doubt his character. I'll bet there's something wonderful he's trying to hide from me. Some experience that he's trying to keep from me. John Piper said it like this, if there is a flaw in God's character, then you cannot always trust his command. It's what Satan's up to. If there's a flaw, if I can get you to doubt God's character, well, then you begin to doubt every single one of his commands. You second-guess his intentions behind them. This is one of the the fill-in-the-blanks for you. Every sin. Not most sin, not some sins. Every sin. So we we tend to categorize the sins as the bad ones and the accidental ones. Oops, I accidentally did this. Friends, every sin comes from a lack of trust towards God, his word, in his heart. I don't trust who you are. I don't trust your character. I don't trust your word. I don't trust that it's reliable. Why is the number one attack uh, in secular universities against Christians the trustworthiness, the reliableness of God's word? Because if I can get you to doubt God's word, you will doubt God himself. And then doubt his heart. This God, this Christian God, he is mean. And then we represent it as if atheism is not a religious view. That the Christianity is a religion, but atheism and secularism is not a religious view. They're the same thing. It's a view of humanity and the universe and sin and consequences of sin and where we all come from. They're both religious views. The fact that schools have decided that Christianity is incompatible and atheistic religion is compatible is absolutely a travesty. That's not what we're here to talk about this morning. Keep it on point. You got too many notes. All right, thank you. I, I don't want you to miss this. I actually think this is, this is pretty key. Uh, got this from John MacArthur. Uh, remember we talked about Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 being different. They're, they're two stories, but they're the same story. So Genesis 1 is this timeline chronology of God's creation, and Genesis 2 is a theological commentary on that timeline, on that creation. So the, the story seems to happen at different times because it's not about the order, it's about the importance that's going on. I want you to catch this. Look, look with me at Genesis 2. Look how Genesis 2 refers to God. All throughout Genesis 1, he's Elohim. It's a generic word that wasn't just used by the Hebrews. It was used by uh, people of all religions in that area. It was a generic term for God. It, it's like when we say God today. You can say God and mean all kinds of things. That Genesis 1 just gives us Elohim 
and it changes when we get to Genesis 2. It shifts from just that to the Lord God. It's actually Lord in all capitals. You see that in your Bible? First time you're going to see it in verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. Lord in all capitals is actually the Hebrew word for Yahweh. It is that personal name of God. It's the one uh, that would translate into the New Testament as I am, the all-powerful, the all-sovereign, the Lord and master of everything and everyone. So we have in Genesis 1, God creates all things, and in Genesis 2, he's the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the sovereign master of all things and all people. Genesis 2-4, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Genesis 2-5, the Lord God had not caused it to rain. Verse 7, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden. Verse 9, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, don't eat of that one tree. Uh, Verse 18, the Lord God said it's not good that the man should be alone. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Verse 22, the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he made into a woman. Verse 1 in chapter 3, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Did you hear a pattern? All throughout chapter 2, he is the sovereign Lord of all that he has made. In chapter 1, he has made it, and in chapter 2, he owns it. Are you tracking with me? Until the serpent comes into the story. Chapter 3, verse 1. The first hiss out of the serpent's mouth. Did God... Did Elohim actually say? All we've heard for the last chapter is the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the sovereign king, and now this serpent won't say his name. Did God really say this? Verse 5, God knows, Elohim knows that when you eat it, the eye, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Three times the serpent refuses to name the covenant of God the sovereign God, the king God, and just uses this generic term. And yet immediately after this scene, Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9, and they heard the sound of who? The Lord God. I don't care what they said. I don't care what Satan said. It doesn't change the fact that our God is the Lord God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of who? The Lord God among the trees of the garden, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said the most piercing question of all humanity, where are you? This moment and every temptation is about God's lordship and his goodness. And she's about to start talking like the snake. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God, Elohim, said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So number one, notice she starts talking in the language of the serpent. She listened to him, and now she's talking like him. Notice she also gives a really half-hearted and problematic answer to all of his questions. He says, is God really this restrictive? 
Is he really keeping you from all these good things? And she sort of half-heartedly responds, no, we can eat of the trees, just, just not that one. Here's the problem. She forgets that the command of the Lord God was about abundance, not restriction. Abundance. I have given you all of this. A few months ago, in fact, I told you some of the, the nightmares of the Grand Canyon a couple weeks ago. A few months ago, we went with Josiah and Miriam. And it, it, Anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? It, it's a long drive up because you're, you're driving up a mountain to get there. And it, after driving up through the, the National Forest and, and you get to the top of it and, and you can't see it. And it, there's like uh, welcome centers and different places that tell you to put a mask on. And, and so you go past that. Somebody's going to listen to this in three years and go, what are you talking about? Uh, you go past that, and then you still can't see it. You walk down a long trail, and you come through a break in the trees, and you come to the crest of it, and it's like all of a sudden, there it is. Such grandeur. You say, how did I not see this from way back there? That's Adam and Eve standing on the precipice of all of God's creation. They're standing there going, are you kidding all of this is for me? That's the kind of abundance God has given them. Genesis 1.29, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. You will never be hungry. Ever. You will always be satisfied. And then comes the one restriction. You shall have Everything that's on this planet, Genesis 2, 16 to 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, shall not, you, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Friends, consider. You may eat of every tree on planet Earth, but one. And what do these spoiled children do? Come on, they do the exact same thing we do. I want that one. I mean, can, can you just hear? It's ridiculous to say it like that, isn't it? And we look at it and we go, oh, oh, Adam. Oh, Eve. <laughs> you foolish children. If only I would have been there. Aren't you glad that you and I have never given in to temptation when God has given you every good and perfect gift coming down from the Father of lights? And then we look at the one thing God has told us not to have, and we go, but I want that. Oh, we're babies. All right. It's the same trick. The same trick he used in Genesis 3 he uses on you and me. God is keeping you from something good. God is repressive. He's mean, or else he'd want you to have it. Here's what she should have said. All right, talking snake. Like, I, I, we don't know his name, so you, you're just going to call him talking snake. Should that not have been a red flag to her? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who you are, but I know the Lord God. He has given us everything good, and all he does is good. I'm going to trust that if he said don't eat it, it's for my good, you can shut up. That would have been a great answer that she does not give to him. Instead, here's the second and I think biggest problem with her answer. 
distorting God's word. The serpent calls her to doubt God's word, and she distorts God's word. Here's what she says. God said, don't eat it, but we, Adam and I, have added an extra rule that says don't touch it. We don't find that command from God anywhere in Scripture, although she puts those words in God's mouth. Now, here's what I think happened. She's like two days old, and she's already forgotten what is what God said and what is what we said. Church, this is the first introduction of legalism into those who follow God, and it hounds the church today. God didn't say, don't touch it. He said, don't eat it. By the way, this is the same desire, this legalism, that God said, don't eat it. So to keep us from doing that, we don't want to accidentally, you know, just be wildly eating. We're on a Garden of Eden buffet trip. By the way, we really need to organize a taco tour where we just hit all the tacos. All right, somebody file that away. It's a beautiful eating tacos to the glory of God. Uh, aside from that, right, that, that's what they're doing. And then they, oops, we accidentally ate of the wrong tree. So we're going to add an extra rule, uh, the six-foot rule. We're not going anywhere near it. We're not touching it. We're staying away from it. It's the same desire we're going to see in verse 7 when once they know of their own sin, they're going to try and sow coverings for themselves. We're going to fix it by keeping ourselves from eating it. And once we've messed up, we're going to fix it by putting systems in place to try and get rid of the guilt, try and hide the shame that we have. Man, you see this all throughout humanity. We believe that we can accomplish good and salvation for ourselves. We believe that we can keep ourselves. And so the church again and again and again falls into legalism. In fact, I would say it's not the church. The entire world falls into legalism. Some system of belief and action that says, if you do this, you are right. Now, come on. If you do it wrong, if you don't listen to our religious rules and keep them, we will cancel you. Anybody heard that in our culture? We're echoing William Henley's poem, Invictus, that ends with these lines. I am the master of of my fate. I am the Lord of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There is none higher than me. Here's the problem with legalism. It opens the door to the accusation of the enemy that God is lying to you. Look at verse 4. Kids, this is your memory verse for the week. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent began by calling her to doubt God's word. It leads her to distort God's word. And now he's openly lying about God's word. Well, mostly. Here's the open door. She's distorted it in such a way where when he says, you will not surely die if you touch it, that might very well be true because God hadn't said that. But he takes the distortion and the clear command of God and he intermingles them so much that she can't tell the difference which is which. Listen to the accusation of God's character in this. He says, you won't surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Kent Stainback said this, Satan will flood you with God's truth just to float one lie. It's one of the fill in the blanks for you. He will flood you with God's truth. Just to float one lie, 
Satan tells her what she will gain, but not what she will lose. Listen to the slander against the character of God. God's afraid he's going to lose power. He's going to lose control over you. He knows that if you eat this, you'll be just like him. He'll lose his control. He just wants to push you down. That church just wants to push you down. The Bible just wants to push you down. Therefore, you should reject it and walk away. That's slander number one. Here's the second, and I think maybe even more dangerous lie. There is no judgment. God said there's, there's a penalty, there's a judgment for sin. You won't die. It's a lie. It's not coming. Do whatever you want. Be you. You're on the right track, baby. Kids, this is in your coloring page, and I don't want you to miss this. God says sin leads to death. Not the pastor, not the church, not somebody who's trying to hold you back. God says sin leads to death. And here's the second part on the other side of that coloring page. Satan and my own heart will lie to me. Genesis 3 world. We, we are part of this fallen world where our hearts want things that aren't good for us. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. Can you just see her staring at it? She, she's barely allowed herself to look at it up to this point. And now she's like, I think he's right. It was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. One more fill-in-the-blank for you here. This desire, she listens to it. Then she looks at it, and sooner or later, it takes hold of her will. I want this. Once it has a hold of her will, it takes a hold of her emotions. And at that point, and here's the fill in the blank, sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. God has given her everything on the planet. Everything that exists is not only a good gift to you, it's perfect. It's unstained. It's uncontaminated. And she listens to a talking snake. Just like you and I do all the time. Because sin makes you stupid. 1 Timothy 2.14 says, It was not Adam who was deceived, that you should mark that word deceived, but the woman who was deceived and fell into transgression. Where was Adam? We're told in here. Now, we're not given any of the details. She gave it to her husband who was where? With her. So Paul tells young Timothy, Eve was deceived. She was tricked. She was blinded into this. Adam went in with his eyes wide open. That's why the penalty for sin actually falls on Adam. James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Two things 
happened right here. Physical death began. Before this moment, they would live forever. There was no, there was no sin. There was no breakdown in the human condition. But at this moment, the aging process as we know it began. And all those who were over 40 went, thanks a lot. Now, it didn't happen right in the moment, but eventually, because of this moment, death would eventually come to them. Physical death would come to them. Now, it's interesting. Just think a little bit here. They weren't told not to eat of the tree of life. Why? They were already going to live forever. This was, this was an eternal state of bliss between them and God. And God said, I've given the, this perfect utopian place. Now be fruitful and multiply in the midst of it. Fill it with even more people who can enjoy my presence and my gift to you. But don't eat of that one tree. The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, here's a little reality. Uh, it wasn't the good and evil. It was the evil. They already knew the good. They had a full knowledge of good. They were walking with God. Everything that they saw before them was good. They were about to experience the allure of evil. And in that moment, everything changed. So it started with a physical change, and there was a spiritual death that immediately happened. The physical death was coming. The process began. The spiritual death happened immediately because sin separates us from God. To this day, sin will separate you from God. It will also separate you from the people around you. What do we do? The minute we fall into sin and we start hiding it, come on, we start sneaking back from other people, pulling back from relationships, pulling back uh, from especially relationships within the body of Christ. And they immediately find themselves naked and ashamed before the watching eye of God. This is fascinating because this, this passage we're looking at, it's actually bookend with them being naked. Just interesting PG-13 version of this sermon on a Sunday morning. Chapter 2 ends with verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Perfect innocence. Un, unstained, uncontaminated by sin. Now, at the end of this passage... They are still naked, but now they are ashamed. They are hiding. They are retreating. They hide themselves in shame. By the way, we're going to talk more on that and the consequences of their sin next week where God comes to them in verse 9 and says, Where are you? What on earth have you done? God knowing full well where they were. God knowing full well what they had done, but calling them to stare their sin in the face. And I kind of just want to leave you hanging there this morning. Not completely, so worship team, come on up. But I, I want to leave us hanging on this idea that our sin separates us from God, that our, our sin stains and contaminates us. Now, now hear this really carefully. That's what Satan is tempting us towards, and that's what our hearts are tempting us towards. A desire for that which will contaminate our souls. Friends, this was the worst trade in world history. Given the perfection of God, given to them in all things. And they traded it for pride. What was the allure that the serpent offered to them? You will be like God. 
You will think like God. You will be wise like God, knowing good from evil. Again, they already knew good. Everything they knew, all that they knew was good. And now they know evil. Listen really carefully as we wrap this up. What comes with that? What comes with that full and free expression of who we are? Guilt and shame. I'm going to say that one more time. What comes with the free and full expression of our own heart's desires is guilt and shame. So what is our world that that rejects God, that hates God, working to do as fast and as hard as they can, alleviate all mentions of guilt and shame? Anything that would make anybody feel guilty, anything that would make them feel shameful, we've got to remove that because that's damaging for them, that's hateful towards them. For men and women made in the image and likeness of God, made for communion with God, and sin is breaking that, it's destroying them, Friends, it is unloving for us to just say, you know what, we're going to remove that guilt and shame that God has given you to lead you towards him and just say, no, no. With the hiss of the serpent, it's all fine. It's all fine. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Now, you can say that from some remote, abstract place. No, it's fine. Do what you want to do. Don't impose uh, your thoughts, your wills on anyone else. Come back and talk to me when you're a parent looking at your teenage or early 20-something teenager who has so destroyed their life that every moment you live in fear of their own suicide because of guilt and shame. You cannot talk them out of it and say, no, just don't feel that way. You're fine. No, you'll find those parents on their knees crying out before God, oh God, save my child. And yet, As much as I would love to leave us hanging, I want to offer hope because the scripture doesn't leave us hanging there. There's a promise. Hope is coming. God is already at work in this situation to restore. He has a promise that is already being unveiled. We're going to see it next week. A coming Savior. Trace the line from Genesis 3 and our own sin, our own guilt, our own shame, as Adam and Eve stand naked and ashamed before the watching eyes of God all the way through the Old Testament until Christ himself comes and is now hung naked and ashamed upon the cross in front of the eyes of all of humanity, in front of the eyes of God. Only in that place he doesn't hide his shame, he bears our shame. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Friends, I want to ask you, to examine your heart right now. What are you trading? What's the bad exchange that right now in your life you are making? I know the, I know the heart of God. I know the character of God. I, I know the commands of the scriptures. And yet I'm willing to trade that in this moment for the allure of this thing that is held out in front of me. And into that, what are you trusting? Are you trusting in that thing, in that person, in that sin to bring you happiness and joy and fulfillment? Or are you trusting in the good character of our saving God? Oh, hear those words. Where are you? A word of warning from 1 John 2.16. It's from the 
New Living Translation. I, I love the simplicity of it. It's not a translation we necessarily recommend for daily reading, but I love the simplicity. For the world offers only craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but from the world. Would you stand together with me as we examine our hearts before God? I want to encourage you to have conversations among yourselves, especially with your families. Just think about, talk about, why on earth would Adam and Eve listen to this snake? Why would they trade all the good that God had given them for momentary pleasure? Why is it dangerous for us today to add to God's word? How does my heart lie to me? But as we ask those questions, I want you to stand and examine your own heart. Because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, somewhere in our life, are making a bad trade. And I don't have to, I don't have to mention it. I don't have to talk you into it. For those of you who are followers of Christ, uh, God convinces your heart of it. He convicts you of it. And what we're to do with that is repent of our sin and trust in Christ. Confess it to other brothers and sisters. Walk with them and trust in Christ. Now, I want you to hear this warning really careful, all right? I know there's a, an adorable small child making noise that half of you are looking at, but I want you to look up here. There's some people in this room who the whole time I've been talking, you've been actively rejecting in your heart and mind everything that I've said. Everything I've said about the command of God, about the character of God, about how we should live in response to that. Are you listening to me? I don't want you to miss this. Your heart is lying to you and it's testifying that you are outside of the grace of God. And I would beg you to repent. I would beg you to call out to God. To submit and surrender your life to God before your heart is so hardened that you don't hear anymore. I promise you that will happen. If you hang around long enough, you'll get really good at rejecting the clear teachings of God, the commands of Scripture, and you'll stop listening. Friends, before that day comes, repent. Before Christ says to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Trust in him. In just a second, we're going to come and take communion together. I just feel like this is the moment, though, we need to stop and lean into that. Would you just bow your head? Close your eyes for just a second. And if that's you in this room, and you're the one who goes, I don't care. I don't care about any of that because I don't believe any of that. God, I'm praying for that person right now. I can't talk them into it. God forbid that we guilt them into it or emotionally move them or manipulate them into it because, God, that just doesn't last. We are praying, O oh, sovereign King, the good God, the Lord God who loves them and who made them for communion with himself, oh, God, would you open their eyes to see Christ? Lord, would you open your eyes? It was a gift that Adam and Eve saw their nakedness. It was a gift that they saw their sin. It was a gift that God covered them. With his own sacrifice, Lord, would you let them see the desperateness of their own heart 
And would you give them grace to trust in Christ unto salvation? We cannot do that for them. Please, God, work in their hearts. Lord, for those of us who know you, and yet our hearts are walking far from you. We're walking uh, under our own strength, what we see with our own eyes, discouragement and depression, even leaning into sin because we think it's going to make us happy in the moment. God, convict us, lead us to repent, and forgive us, O God. Let us trust in you, our only God, our only Lord, our only Savior, we pray. Amen. If your hope and your trust is in Christ for salvation, as the worship team leads us, would you come to the table of the Lord as we proclaim our hope is in the body of Jesus that was broken for us on the cross. Our only hope before God is that the blood of Jesus fully paid the debt that my sin owed. We proclaim that every week as we eat together and we drink together. My hope is in Christ alone. If you're a believer, would you come and proclaim that with us? And if you are not a believer, I would just ask you to sit this one out. Sit it out, not because we don't love you, not because we don't want you to be a part of this, but because we want you to sit and contemplate what are the consequences for rejecting Christ in this great salvation. We say that Christ alone is our shelter and Christ alone is is our anchor. In the midst of that confession, we pray, O God, would you give us grace and strength that are not our own, but come from the enabling of your Spirit to trust when our strength is gone, to stand in hope when our strength is gone, to believe that our God is the Lord God, the sovereign over everything and everyone. Oh, my soul, put your hope in God, my help, my rock, my salvation. Lord, let your blessing be upon your people. Let your spirit be in us and with us. Let us live lives to the honor of your glory. Send us from this place, oh God, with hope. Not because we've decided to have hope, but because our God is the living hope, we pray. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.